So, as tradition would have it, when most people come on this particular Sunday or the next, we have to have a message that is based on the year to come. So, the entitlement of my sermon today is how to have the best 2013 ever and make all your wildest dreams come true. And Peter now is going, what in the heck have I done? (laughs) That's not the title of my sermon. Um, Today I'm going to talk about something that I believe that will help us leading into 2013, but not just 2013 in our everyday Christian walk. We're out uh, on the veranda today praying before the meeting and uh, Peter just prayed something that was just, it's essential to our faith is that um, he just prayed that Christ would be at the centre of everything that we do and say. Is that a revelation to anyone? No. It's a revelation to me. It's something that we know that's a part of everyday life. It's a part of everyday faith. But there's another thing in actually living that. Who finds it hard to live that? Okay, we've got some people here that the sermon is for. This is good. So today we're going to preach from Luke 10, 38 to 42. If you guys would like to turn to that, that would be great. So that's Luke 10... 38, it may be a story that you're familiar with, it's a story of Mary and Martha. Who's familiar with this story? Got a couple of people, any of the youth familiar with the story? Vaguely? Yep, well this is good. Alright, I'm going to lead off, I'm going to read half of the passage, there's only five verses that I'll be preaching on today and uh, it's an interesting little section of scripture, it's sort of just plonked down Amongst all the other scriptures here, amongst um, my pages have turned, uh, amongst um, the parable of the, the Good Samaritan and Jesus teaching us how to pray. And there's just a small section of verses there, but they're a powerful set of verses. So I'm going to lead off. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Can I grab a glass of water? From someone, if that's possible. I think my mouth has got some glue in it. Um, so the scenario here is that uh, that's awesome. Bear with. That's so good. Um, so the scenario is that Jesus has been moving around the region. He's been praying for people, he's been seeing healings, he's been giving amazing messages. The region is abuzz with who he is and what he's doing. People have got all these different theories about who he is. So he's kind of like the man of the hour. Whether it be right or wrong, he is the man of the hour and everyone's talking about him. And Martha is going to be having Jesus in her home for a meal. So there's a little bit of 
excitement going on. There may be neighbours looking over the fence as Jesus and his homeboys rock up the path, looking over the fence, maybe even being a bit jealous that uh, they didn't have an opportunity to put out an invite for Jesus to come over to their house. So if we can just imagine Jesus' disciples rock up, Martha opens up the door, there's kisses on both cheeks, it's great to have you, a lot like it is when they come over to my place. No, I'm part of Tain, but I don't kiss on both cheeks, don't worry. Um, comes over, welcomes him with open arms, is excited about him being there. She runs off to the kitchen and starts getting this meal ready. In the meantime, we have Jesus settling in, getting in the lounge room there, the 12 are there. There's probably a decent-sized family that's also a part of Mary and Martha's household, and they're all sitting around listening to the most awesome things that Jesus has to say that is changing their lives and their hearts. And I imagine, and I might be wrong, and I have no theological evidence for this, but for some reason I imagine Mary is the younger sister. I don't know why, I just imagine that she's the younger sister, and she has positioned her feet herself <laughs> and her feet at the, <laughs> at the bottom of Jesus' feet and is listening intently and drinking in everything that Jesus has to say, and she is blown away. But let's cut back to the kitchen. There's something else going down in the kitchen. We're talking about absolute disaster. Martha is out of control. She is frazzled. She doesn't know whether she's coming or going. The souffle is not doing what it's supposed to do. The cream brulee has burnt. And she's got another eight meals to organise to get this banquet together. And she is losing it. In the NIV, it says she was distracted. If you look at the original Greek, a probably a better interpretation is that she was actually fretting. She was worried that it wasn't all coming together. So while all this is going on, she looks out from the servery of the kitchen and observes her sister reclining casually at the feet of Jesus, enjoying herself, being engaged. And Martha is absolutely ticked. I mean, she is like, what is going on? This is not on. So she's getting read out. But not only is she ticked with her sister, she's actually ticked with Jesus. This is a, a hairy situation here. She's getting really worked up about what's going on in this scenario. So, if you can imagine this, the kitchen has one of those swinging doors and she is so angry about this, there's on a verge of a showdown that's going to happen. So she comes through the door, she kicks open the swinging door, marches on through there right up to Jesus. The good, the bad and the, the ugly music comes up. And she is going to give it to Jesus, her honoured house guest, which just earlier she was just so overwhelmed, so glad to have you in her house and be a part of her life. Now she is ticked with him and she's going to unleash on him. And she does. And she uh, lays down a bit of a emotion here. And I think she genuinely was upset. She says, don't you care? 
Isn't it the worst when somebody comes up to you and confronts you with something of, don't you care? And you go, oh no, this is going to be bad. <laughs> of course I care, of course I care. And she basically says, don't you care that I'm out there doing all this work and you guys in here are sitting around doing nothing and my sister is sitting at feet and she's doing nothing? And then she says, she commands Jesus. Wow, we're really entering into scary territory here. She's commanding Jesus to tell her to come in and help me. She's dishing it out. How would we respond to this? How would you like if <laughs> I invited you over for dinner and you're an honoured guest in my house and then I lost it with you and then I start telling you what to do? It's not really cool, is it? It's not really a very comfortable situation. But if we can actually stop for a moment and actually look underneath the surface of what's really going on in this scenario and why Martha is so upset. I don't think that, that really... At the core of it, it really is about the food that she's preparing. I think the, 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 the true thing is she's made an assumption of what Jesus wants from her and now she's upset because it's not really what he wants from her. I think for us, a lot of the time, we can fall into the trap of doing things that we think Jesus wants from us, that Jesus expects from us, or even to the degree that we start doing something and we want Jesus just to bless what we're doing. And we get so caught up in the doing, and these things can be things that are not necessarily wrong, they can be good things, but we just get so caught up in the doing that we're actually no longer really being in tune to what God wants from us. And I know in my life, we've all here, or most of us here, have probably invited Jesus into our lives, to be a part of our lives. We've surrendered our lives to him, but who knows that that surrender is an ongoing thing. It's a daily surrender. It's easy for us to fall back into old habits. It's easy for us to start doing. Even if they're Christian things we're doing, if we're not in tune with what we're supposed to be doing, these things can be wrong. There's a booklet called My Heart, Christ's Home. Has anyone ever heard of this booklet? Anyone? No, no, no. I did have the booklet with me. I'll just see if it's hiding my Bible. It is. That's a booklet there. Just if you want to see that at Kurong. It'll set you back 95 cents a kurong. But it's about a story about somebody, just a really short story about somebody who invites Christ into their home and gives access, all the rooms in his home, he gives access to, to Jesus. But what happens over time is he actually starts closing up areas in his life that Jesus can't have access to. And I think it's such a great analogy for us is that we do that as well. We invite Jesus in with great gusto. We welcome in, him into our lives. But then we start wanting him to do what we want him to do. That's a danger. Um, we start closing off areas in our life that we're not willing to let him enter into. 
And I think in part, this is what's happening with, with Martha, is that she had certain expectations, none that have come from God or Jesus, and now she's frustrated that basically Jesus isn't doing what she wants him to do. Who knows that this is a dangerous area to be in? I think if we're all really honest, there's been seasons in our life that we've taken over control and whether we know we're doing it or not, we're actually dictating or trying to dictate to Jesus of how he should act and how he should move in our lives. That can even happen through our prayers. Instead of having a conversation with Jesus or let your will be done, we actually can come to him with a list of demands. Is this true? Or is, it just, is this sermon just for me? I need this sermon, so that's fine. All right. Um, then we jump down to verse 42. And Jesus' reply to uh, Martha's rather passionate yellings and screamings and rantings and raving is, Martha, Martha. I don't think this is Jesus being condescending. I think this is Jesus saying this very loving, lovingly to her and hopefully trying to drop down the tone of the energy that's flying around the room. In our household, when somebody says something with a bit of attitude or a bit of tone, we'll say, was there a bit of tude to that? Was there a bit of tone? Was there a bit of tude? Am I picking up a bit of tude? And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's obviously picking up a bit of tude, a bit of attitude. And um, says, so the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Martha has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Joe Fitzmaier is a scholar, a dusty old scholar, and he believes that there's something more going on in just these two verses than it's just one on what's on the surface, which is pretty straightforward by all accounts. And is, is merited, which is what Jesus is saying is what he's saying. But he also believes that there could be a bit of double meaning and a bit of an analogy going on in some of the language that Jesus is using. The section says, only one thing is needed. And on the surface, which is correct, one thing is needed. We need to stop, we need to listen to Jesus, and we need to sit at his feet. The underlying meaning he believes is only one thing is needed, is actually referring to food. Only one dish is needed. In these kind of situations when you have an honoured guest in the culture, the deal was that you'd be doing numerous dishes. You might be doing up to 10 dishes. So you can imagine if Martha is doing 10 dishes, how caught up she is and how frantic she is and how distressed she is, is by trying to juggle all these dishes to get them done. And Joe Fitzmaier is suggesting that in the underlying text is that he's actually referring to only one dish is needed, also as in only one thing is needed. Um, and then it goes on to say, Mary has chosen what is better. And in uh, the Greek or the geek, the word is meris, M-E-R-I-S, I think I've pronounced it right, which means what is better or the good part or the better part. So you could say that Mary has chosen the better part. Joe Fitzmaier also says that Maris can be used in two words 
once again lining up with his believing that there's two things going on two different levels here is that um, the word meris is actually used in direct terms when coming to cooking and food. So it could be the better part of the animal or the better dish. So, and the other way it can be used is just simply in des describing something. So what could be said is that Jesus actually said, while in the context of Martha trying to cook all these dishes, that he's actually saying that, that Mary has chosen the better dish. And I suppose Maris is, is similar to, in thinking in terms of a double meaning in a word, would be marinate. You obviously marinate meat, but then people use the term marinate to think on things as well. And I think that's probably the closest way of explaining that. But neither here nor there, just an interesting sideline. Um, but getting back to the words, Mary has chosen what is better. Mary has chosen what is better. And in that framing of those words, to me it suggests that maybe what Martha was doing was good. Maybe it was fine. Maybe there was nothing immoral about what she was doing. She was just cooking food. And I think most food is pretty non-immoral. <laughs> she was cooking food. But he uses the reference of Martha's chosen what's better. And I think the biggest challenge for us as Christians is we're pretty squared away with knowing about good and evil. We know that doing this is evil and we know that doing this is good. Still doesn't mean that we don't have a challenge with wrestling with those two concepts in everyday life. But the other thing that's more subtle that maybe we don't wrestle with as much that we need to wrestle with is choosing between what is good and not necessarily even sinful and choosing what is better. Does that make sense? There's a very slight distinction. between Choosing between something that is good and something that is better. And I believe what Jesus has for us is the better. I believe that the better touches on eternity and I believe the good more likely than not doesn't or doesn't have the same kind of impact. And it's even suggested in the scripture that Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. To me, that is su suggests that it's eternal. What's been going on in the floor in the lounge room in sitting at Jesus' feet and getting his words and getting his direction for her life is something that will be never taken away from her that will, in turn, impact eternity. And sometimes it's really hard discerning between the good things and the better things. Who has trouble with that sometimes? Trying, like there's, there can be a smorgasbord of great opportunities. They're all things that come under the, the, the terminology of serving God. And look, it's great to serve God and it's great to serve in your church. And I think that's an imperative part of being in the community. But I also believe that you just don't say yes to things just for the sake of saying yes to things. You want to say yes to things that you've got a sense of a leading towards. You want to say yes to things that you genuinely feel God 
is doing in your life and that you feel that you can actually contribute to other people. But there's a lot of things that cut across that. What are your motivations for saying yes to some of these good things? I know for me, I can be prone to being a people pleaser. But after a a bit of a season in ministry, I no longer have a problem with that. (laughs) Um, I do have a bit of a problem still. But there's always an underlying thing, I I believe, is that for most of us, we do want to please people. We don't want to disappoint people. We want to be supportive. But that's not a reason in itself to say yes to everything. We really do need to discern between what is better and best. And the only way that we're really going to be able to do that is by spending time sitting at the feet of Jesus. For me, (laughs) I know that the way I'm wired, I love being given um, something to do and I love it being measurable and I love it being... X amount of units and I love being able to just get into it and do it. I own it, tell me to do 100 widgets, awesome, show me how to do it, off I go, I do 100 widgets. The great thing about this is I know there's no variables, I know I've got to do the 100 widgets and I also know that I can take control of it. I can do it how I want to do it. And sometimes some of the things that we say yes to is because basically... We just want something to do. We can say that we're doing something. We know what the parameters of it are and we'll just keep on turning up and doing it. Now, there's lots of things in a church that need to be done, so I'm not saying to start saying no to collecting the offering and stuff like that. You can do that. That's fine. That's not taking up too much time. But it's a lot harder for us actually to stop in this world and this society in which we live and actually be quiet and be still, and actually sit at the feet of Jesus and actually listen to what he's directing us to do. It's a lot easier to be told what to do. It's a lot easier to get Peter or Diff or Nath to tell us what to do. Just, hey, look, I'm here, just tell me what to do. And just lock it away in a box and just get down and doing it. And sure, great, you're meeting a need, things are ticking over, but is that what's better? <laughs> what, what the, where the better is, where the zone of the better is, is at the feet of Jesus. Getting that direction, getting those leadings. And not just the opening your life to Jesus, but actually letting him come into your life and letting him own your life. Once again, getting back to what we were praying about out on the balcony, is letting Jesus be the center. And if you can imagine a, a huge circle on my imaginary whiteboard that I'm drawing through. Um, there's, an, there's a real one up there. But anyway, uh, big circle, and then we've got the circle in the middle, and that's Jesus. But that circle can quite easily get pushed to the outer regions of ourself. It can even get pushed outside of that circle. And I believe our challenge as Christians is constantly, day by day, moment by moment, is trying to move that circle back into the center. Um, there's a book that was recommended to us at the start of the year called Disciple, not Discipleship, but Disciple by Bill Clem, I think. Um, 
I'm still reading that book, but in the first chapter or two, he actually lays out something that I've always known for the whole existence of my Christian faith, but he lays it out in such a way that just really set off an alarm bell and set a tone for me this year is that he describes our lives as a story or we're a part of a bigger story than ourselves. We think we're the story, but we're not actually the story. We're a character in the bigger story. And it's Jesus' story. We're a part of Jesus' story. We're not the main ca- character. Hey, we're not the main character in this sitcom, okay? We're just a passing through small character. We're not the main character in this deal because it's actually Jesus' show in this analogy. And we're guests that come in for a short amount of time to serve a purpose. And the sooner that we eradicate the thinking of thinking that it is our show and that we are the main star, the sooner we'll be able to do things that will impact and touch eternity. And like Mary, it will not be taken away from us. Who wants that in their life today? Three people. Who wants it? Oh, Jacob wants it in his life. This is good. Oh, okay. Talk about underlining your father. Uh, um, I know I want this, and I know that it's hard. And it might sound simplistic to say, all we need to do is sit at the feet of Jesus. But it's where it's at. The, the scripture is riddled with scripture. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things shall be added unto you. Jesus himself led the example of the importance of us taking time away from everything, slowing down, quietening our spirit, going to somewhere that is a lonely place or a solitary place and actually stopping and actually getting direction from him in everything that we do. Some scriptures here that you might want to check out um, of Jesus doing this is Luke 5.16 and Mark 1.35. Luke 5.16 is, But Jesus often withdrew to a lonely place and prayed. And without making it a spiritual thing, praying, as we all know, hopefully, is just talking to God. It's just submitting yourself to Him and talking and having a dialogue. And prayer is not a one-way thing. It's not us putting out demands or, or, or a list of toys we want. It's an, actually a dialogue. It's a, it's a talking, listening, talking, listening. Sometimes it might be even just listening. And I believe that everything that impacted Jesus' ministry was all from the times of him drawing away in a quiet place and connecting with his father and, and getting a, a good idea of how he's being led. Mark 1.35, Jesus got up and left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. We need to turn off our iPhones, our iPads, our crackberries. We need to close the door. We need to hide somewhere if we're parents. I don't know where that is, but we do need to hide somewhere. And we do need to do that. And you know what? That's really hard. It's really hard for us to stop. 
I'm not going to say that it's an easy thing, it's a simple step. It sounds simple, we all know it. I'm not revealing any great new truths within the Christian world. This will be not up in the latest Christian weekly magazine, what I've preached on. The thing is, the power of this is actually doing it. It's not whether you know it, it's not whether you've heard it before, it's actually acting on it and actually determining to actually make that time stop Find a space that works for you where you can be in a solitary place and that you can hear from Jesus. You can sit at his feet. So, now that I've said all that, you can go home, you can have lunch, you can catch up with friends, you can watch the movie tonight. And so, what an awesome sermon that James preached. Wasn't that great? That was mind-blowing. The insight. Oh, the hilarity. And then go off to work or school or for those who are still on holidays, which won't be lasting for much longer, I'd like to point out, um, and just get on with our lives and, and actually not activate this. So I'm going to ask you to do something now in hopes that some of you guys will actually act on, if you're not already doing it, I shouldn't assume that you're not doing it, but if you're not already doing it or you need to do it more often, is actually talk to someone for husbands and wives and suggest that's who you talk to, there's no husband and wives involved, a close friend, and actually say, hey, look, I really do need to sit more often at the feet of Jesus and I need to be accountable to you on that. I'm going to tell you what I'm putting in place to do that and how often I want to do that. Ask me how that's going every couple of weeks. If I start avoiding you, you know that I'm not doing that. (laughs) And it's not about badgering people. It's not about making people feel guilty about whether they are or they aren't doing it. It's just a checking mechanism to keep these kind of things in the forefront of our mind. And in the context of us leading into 2013, I think that it'd be really great if we, if he's not already, but if we can get Jesus in the centre of our lives and determine to keep him there every day of every moment, which is a challenge. When your child has asked you the same question 39 times that you've said no to every time, it's times like that 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 gets tested, that whether Jesus is in the centre or whether killing my son is in the centre. (laughs) I know that we're all there for different kinds of things and it's an ongoing challenge, but I genuinely do believe that if we can enter into 2013 with that in the forefront of our minds amongst everything that we have to do, I really genuinely do believe that it could set the tone for a great year, whatever that may hold, whether it be good things or, or challenges or, or areas of growth. So there ended the, the lesson as Sean McCrory, uh, Sean, Sean, what's his name? Sean Connery would say in The Untouchables. All right, I'm going to close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for who you are in our lives. Lord, we just pray and determine that you are in the centre of our lives, Lord, and I just pray that we can choose between the good things in our life and the better things, the things that you want us to do. Lord, just lead us and Lord, just help us keep it accountable and true to you being in the centre. I pray this in your name. Amen.